17 world records, Madam in the Hooker, Ascension Island. That's all I'm going to say. Get ready for Scott Levin. I am super excited to welcome you to the show, Scott. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Lexi. So I am staring at a map that you just drew of Ascension Island that I'm learning about. And I'm so stoked for this conversation because you're telling me that there's a 2,000 pound marlin swimming around this place that I know nothing about. And I cannot wait to learn more about this. I'm picturing Jurassic Park right now. <laughs> Is that what it looks like? Definitely. Yes. Yeah, so I am so excited. Let's jump right in because your story is epic. You literally had the opportunity to fish around the world on a specific boat that was designed just for that. I know that you hold numerous world records. You know, you have a book written about your travels. So I'm dying to know and to tell everybody, you know, how did this start? I would say it started at a very young age. Um, you know, my addiction to fishing uh, was introduced to me through my parents uh, from a young age when I was probably two or three years old. They took me to a mall with a fountain that was full of rainbow trout. I wasn't ready for that. A mall, normally. A mall. Fishing. I know. Crazy, right? <laughs> Addiction. Yeah. And I, it was one of the things that stood out in my childhood more than anything that, you know, I really didn't remember much when I was two or three years old. But when they put a rod in my hand with a piece of line and, and a hook, and you could literally put it in a, a pond in front of you, which was the fountain at the mall, and catch a rainbow trout every time you put it in and pulled it out, and then you would take it home to eat for dinner, it, it still stands in my mind as like a vivid memory of last year. Where is this mall? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Virginia, and this mall was actually near a relative's house in New Jersey. Okay, so obviously we're in South Florida today. You're born and raised in the Northeast? Yes, I am. Awesome. All right. So how did you make this dream a reality of, you know, continuing to fish? So from that point on, all I wanted to do was fish. It was the... the an addiction that I could not break. And as a young kid, I would look for any pond or stream or body of water that I could catch fish. And my parents uh, introduced me um, at a also very young age in the summertime uh, to Ocean City, New Jersey and fishing from the beach and piers and eventually working in tackle shops and going on small boats fishing. And it, it, was just a dream to one day get to go saltwater fishing somewhere like Florida. And when did that happen for you? Because it clearly was very much in the front of your mind of getting to Florida and continuing this dream. It was. It definitely was. Um, I dreamed about just being able to go to the Florida Keys one day and and catch fish down there, a marlin or a billfish. And uh I decided when I was in high school that I wanted to go to Florida where it was warm and sunny and a beautiful ocean and it was full of fish and boats. <laughs> warm all year long, right? That's right. Yeah. This morning was like 60 degrees. We almost died, right? It was freezing. <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> 
So how did you get to the Keys or did you get to the Keys? So I decided to apply to schools after high school and uh, follow a career that was on the ocean and came to Florida and went to um, a maritime school. And from there, I got my captain's license and, and met a bunch of great friends down in South Florida that are still very, I'm very close with and taught me how to fish down here. And that led to all kinds of opportunities of being able to go fishing in places like the Bahamas and the Keys. And it just started from there. So what was your first job like straight out of college? Did you jump right into the fishing world? And were your parents always like gung-ho about this, totally on board? Like what was their response to this? My father was a businessman in DC and, and did not have any idea that you could actually have a job that was, uh, that you could fish for a living or, or a job as a captain. And so they were like, I don't think that's really a job. And uh, I soon came to find out that it actually was. And Did you even care if it wasn't? <laughs> no, pretty much not. <laughs> you had made your mind college. up. I feel like yeah, I'm hearing, I was like, still gonna I'm go going, fishing. Dad, if you need me, I'll be in the Keys. Exactly. So I got to go to the Keys through some of my friends that I met in Florida and fished down there and uh, the Bahamas and... It, it just made the addiction greater, and it's all I wanted to do. So what's your first move? How did you make this happen? So my senior year in college, I was sitting there and dreaming and reading fishing magazines about some of the greatest charter boats and operations in the world, uh, which we've most people have heard about, called the Madam and the Hooker. And I was reading about all the fishing destinations and places that they went and all the world records they went. and I was completely blown away at how amazing their experiences were. And one day I decided before I was getting ready to graduate um, to call the ad in the back of the magazine to go fishing on the boat. And the owner of the boat answered the phone and I was stumped. I couldn't believe that I was actually speaking to a guy that was a world famous fisherman and already held numerous world records. and. Skip Smith ran his fishing boat, the, one of the most famous captains in the world. And I told him that I was just a young kid getting ready to graduate from college. And I, my dream was to go fishing and traveling around the world and asked him if I could send him a resume. And he was like, absolutely. Okay. This is insane. So you're how old when you did this? I think I was about 20. So you're 20 years old. You're reading a magazine, and from what I recall, that was a charter boat, right? So that was the reason that the number was in the magazine was to inquire about charters, right? That's correct, yeah. So you call this number, the owner picks up, you know exactly who he is, and you're like, ooh, man, game on. Like, uh, you were totally in the spotlight. I was and you nervous. just went for it. Yeah. yeah. What are you feeling when you realize you're talking to the owner? I didn't know what to say other than I was like, so I would love an opportunity to, you know, work on your boat one day. And I just asked him if I, I was kind of nervous. I said, can I send you a resume? And he's like, sure. Did you stutter? Or were you like, I or you, probably you did. I No, I was, I knew what I wanted to ask him, but I was also, I didn't think he was going to answer the phone. So I was a bit nervous. Absolutely. And so it sounds like it was well-received. 
Yeah. So I sent him a resume and I didn't hear uh, from him for a while. He actually said that he may be making a crew change in a couple months and he would uh, consider uh, giving me a call. And so when I got to the point where I was uh, graduating, I heard a position for a mate on the J&T, Johnson and Towers, the famous boat uh, from up north. It traveled all through the Bahamas and the Northeast and fished tournaments uh, with Captain Walt Hill and Teresa. And I ended up taking that job for the summer and fishing tournaments all up off, off of the Northeast and canyon fishing. And uh, it, was, it was also a very wonderful learning experience, fishing with guys like uh, Walt Johnson Sr. and Walt Johnson III and Bob Shomo and all the guys that made, you know, J&T the company that it was. It was a pretty awesome experience to jump right in and go fish tournaments and with, you know, some of the most professional guys in the business. So were you thinking after talking to the owner of the Madam and the Hooker, like, okay, great conversation. Can't believe I got him on the phone. I'm going to go, you know, expand my horizons and get some experience. Were you thinking he'd ever call you or like, what were you hoping for? I didn't really think about it because all I was concerned with after I think any kid is getting out of college is finding a job. So I was just happy that I found a job doing what I wanted to do. Um, when I actually got off the phone after that conversation, my roommate looked at me and he goes, who are you just talking to? And I go, Jerry Dunaway, the owner of the Madam and the Hooker. And he goes, why were you talking to Jerry Dunaway? <laughs> and I go, well, I called him up and asked him for a job. And he goes, what? You asked him for a job. He's like, you don't, you, you don't have any experience. And I go, no, I know. But I just figured I'd call him and ask him for a job. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, uh, you're not going to get that job. Did you realize in that moment, like what a go-getter you were that you like set yourself apart and that you really just picked up the phone? No, I didn't. I didn't think that at all. I was just all I knew that I was, I wanted to go fishing and I wanted to travel. And I knew that I wanted to broaden my experience of traveling and I, I wanted to leave. I wanted to go to the Caribbean. I, like I couldn't get enough. It was just such an addiction that I, I wanted to go further and see more, more of the world. So you got you know, you're expanding your resume, you're getting time on the J&T, which is a very reputable boat, like you said, with incredible, you know, fishermen, you're gaining all this knowledge. How did you end up on the Madam and the Hooker? So uh, after we'd finished our season of fishing up north, the boat uh, had normally come south. So we were traveling south um, down to Florida. And when we got uh, into Florida, we stopped in uh, St. Augustine. Uh, to spend the night. And my sister lived there. And she came to meet us because I had called her and we were going to plan on having dinner. And she came down to the boat and she had a big stack of mail. And she's talking away and kind of filling me in. I hadn't seen her in, in um, probably six or eight months. And on the top of my pile of mail was a little sticky note that said, call Jerry Dunaway. And I didn't notice it at first. And after she started talking and getting into this conversation. I saw the note and I was like, uh, hold on, what is that? And she goes, oh, this guy, Jerry Dunaway has been trying to get a hold of you, but he's been speaking to dad. No way. And yeah. And I was just blown away. And I was like, wait, wait a minute, what? And she's like, don't worry. He said there was no hurry to call him, but he wanted to talk to you about a possible job. And I was just, 
Like my, I, nothing, I could hear nothing else. What was your blood pressure at that moment? I, I have no idea. I was so excited. Because a regular blood pressure is 120 over I 80. Was like, I feel like yours I, was yeah, at least 150. At least, at least. So I grabbed the sticky note and I'm like, I got to call him. She's like, no, no, it's, it's fine. You don't need to call him. He said, there's no hurry. He's like, call when you get settled in in Florida. And I'm like, I can't wait. I've got to go call him right now. It was like eight o'clock at night. So I went to the nearest payphone at the marina and called him and uh, introduced myself. And he's like, oh, thanks for calling. And he's like, I just want to know, I've been talking to your dad for the last week. And I know you were traveling and kind of out of range. And he said, um, you know, I, I received your resume and I've, I've never received a resume before uh, for a job on my boats and because we're just fishermen. And but my question to you is, are you applying to be the captain or the mate? And I go, the mate, you have the most <laughs> famous captain in the world. Why? <laughs> I go, I don't have any, you know, a lot of experience. And he's like, okay, good. I was just checking because your resume was so impressive. He's like, I've never had somebody apply that's got their captain's license and has the, you know, a college education. And I was like, cool. And he's like, uh, well, when you get down south a little further in the next couple of days, if you meet, go meet Skip, my captain, and if he likes you, you're hired. And what I was like- in the world went through your mind I, in that moment? I was like so excited, but I wanted to cry. And I was like, this is the most incredible opportunity of a lifetime. And so when I hung up, I went back to the boat and told- you know, uh, Walt and Teresa and my sister and Walt was just blown away and everybody was like, oh my God, that's the most incredible thing I've ever heard. And I was like, just it, nothing else mattered at that point. It was like the, one of the happiest moments in my life. I knew that if Skip liked me, that I was going to get to go see the world and travel with the best in the entire world of fishing. That literally gives me chills. Like you had to have realized like my life is about to change in this exact moment. Didn't yep. you feel that way? Yep. It was unbelievable. So the journey began and obviously Skip and you hit it off and, and yep. you know, was the rest history? Like, well, how did the journey begin as far as where was the first destination? This is a charter boat that fishes all around the world. Yep. It was, uh, so I went and met Skip and we hit it off and he's like, all right, I'm going to call Jerry, tell him you're hired. And he's like, the boat is in Texas getting a little bit of a refit after our two-year Atlantic tour. And our next tour is going to be through the Pacific for a couple of years. And uh, I think it was like November, October, something like that. And he said, uh, you know, go home, have Christmas with your parents and we'll meet in Texas at the boat in the Gulf and we'll take off from there and go through the canal over the Pacific and start our expedition. And that's Probably because you're not going to see your family for a couple of years. <laughs> right. They were like, yeah, go home, you know. Say your goodbyes. Because we fish. You're about, to, you're about we, to be family with Blue Marlin now. Yeah. We fish 350 days a year and our charters are back to back. And, you know, we, we chartered half the year and Jerry and Deborah fish the other half of the year. And Jerry and Deborah were the owners, correct? Yes, they were. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so explain this boat. You know, give us a visualization of what the Madam and the Hooker looks like. So the the Madam was a hundred and ten foot supply oil supply boat that had been converted to be uh, more like a comfortable yacht, and the back deck was left open, which we carried a dry dock 
that would float or fill with water and, and sink. And it carried a 48-foot GNS um, on top of it. And we pulled the whole setup up on the back deck. We carried 40,000 gallons of fuel. And we had enough food for, you know, six, six months at a time to, to, you know, to go to places that were the most remote destinations and no one had ever been to because we carried the fuel and the food. So it sounds like you were the most well-equipped boat to take any client to the most desirable fishing destinations that were unreachable by other people. That's right. We just had to figure out how to get to like some place where there was some type of port or runway that, you know, our, our clients could maybe fly into an airport and then get a smaller plane to land at a runway somewhere that we could get to. So... How did your clients fly in? Because I, I can already tell that you absolutely realized at the time how big this offer was. You know, you jumped right in, no hesitation. And you're telling me you're fishing 350 days a year, but we're also in the most remote destinations. How did your charter clients get to you? By plane or boat. I mean, some of them had to fly into places and take a 30, 40 minute boat ride to get to us. Um, to some of the destinations we were because there were no roads. Uh, but we tried to make it to, you know, everything was planned out and our charters were, you know, uh, planned way ahead of time. So we just made sure that we could get to somewhere where we could pick them up. I bet you met some pretty cool people that are, you know, chasing fish like that around the world and, you know, getting in touch with your operation. You had to meet some really interesting people. We did. We, we, um, we met a lot of great people everywhere we went. It was, we, we were welcomed with just, you know, and people were in awe that we were doing this back then and they wanted to be part of it. So they welcomed us like we were locals, like everywhere we went, every island or every country. And, uh, it was really heartwarming and, and, really special to be received like that from from people all over clearly there was a strong respect for what you guys were doing and the way that you carried yourself and also the fish you caught so which we're going to get into uh but walk me through each destination that you fished and like tell me what these places look like you know we're, we're saying that we've been all around the world specifically which destinations did you guys go to we started out uh, in uh, Central America and southern part of Costa Rica and traveled up the coast um, to Costa Rica, all through Costa Rica and up to Mexico. And after Mexico, we took off across the Pacific and went to Hawaii, to Kona, and fished the summer there. And then from there, we went on to Australia and fished on the Great Barrier Reef. And from there, we headed back uh, to the west, um, to Tahiti, uh, stayed in Tahiti for a few months. This is crazy. And then came all the way back to, uh, to the U.S. and then back down to uh, Mexico, to Cabo. That's unbelievable. Like 20 years old, you're just chasing continents and fish. And so what are you catching? It in, was, in it was a dream come true. Every, you know, we were specifically just targeting billfish. You know, obviously we caught tuna and dolphin and wahoos and everything else to, you know, to eat. But, you know, our, our clients came to fish with us um, to either catch numbers of fish 
or to light tackle fish and try to catch world records online class. And we mostly did that just for bill fishing. That's a huge compliment itself. World records. Like I know that you carry multiple world records yourself. Tell me a little bit about that. So while I was with Skip, um, we caught 17 uh, light tackle billfish line class records, men and women's, all different sizes, uh, ranging from sailfish, blue marlin, black marlin, swordfish. Um, it was the most incredible time of my life. We didn't catch a lot of fish on that tackle, obviously. Um, we probably only caught about two or three, four percent of the fish that we hooked. But when you did, it was a pretty special experience knowing that you were the first and only one to ever catch a fish on that line class. But that really paints a picture. When you're talking about only landing 4%, the abundance of fish you probably saw and that you were put on that day, like, you know, we talk about the difference of what we used to see to now. Do you think, you know, that that's something to be talked about? It's it's unbelievable it's it's such an incredible difference like i watch these crews and fish with these crews nowadays and they can't be broken away from the number game it's just they want to go to these places and it's all about the numbers numbers catching as many fish as you can being the one that's caught the most fish in a day and um catching a fish on a line class that's a record is such a harder accomplishment that I guess you you get used to losing so many fish and people nowadays are not used to that. They're used to catching everything and they want to catch them all. And so they don't, a lot of people don't understand the feeling until you've done it and then been rewarded with that. It's a feeling like nothing else. Explain that specifically for people who haven't light tackle fished. Like Explain the difference of exactly what you're talking about right now. Like we know what that is, but you know, for someone who hasn't been, you know, to that country to do that, explain how difficult it is to even just, you know, to cast on that lighter line or things like that. Well, it's just like um, kind of. It's kind of. It, it takes an effort of like winning a tournament. It takes a complete group effort. It takes all the right tackle, the right boat, uh, being in the right place at the right time, all of that. So it's a huge team effort. Um, but what makes it more challenging about catching that fish? Well, and when I say light tackle, like most people think 20 pound is light tackle, you know, we're fishing two pound and four pound and six That's and eight crazy. and 12. And, uh, so it's, it's a lot of luck and a lot of also a lot of skill and teamwork that has to all come together. And you were catching a lot larger fish on that light tackle, correct? Yeah, we, we caught all sorts of you know, big fish on extremely light tackle. And we lost a lot of big fish on light tackle, obviously. You know, we we caught the, we, Marg Love was the first woman to ever catch a blue marlin on four pound test. And when we did it, it was a world record, 164 pounds on four pound. That's and incredible. That you were there still for that. Stands. Yep. Wow. That's amazing. So let's talk about craziest bite you've ever seen. Because there's got to be something that sticks out in your mind that you'll never forget as long as you live. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the different experience, a lot of crazy things happen. Probably some of the most memorable or one of the most memorable, I would have to say in Australia on the Great Barrier Reef, the mating season of the black marlin, of the female black marlin is, is 
one of the most amazing wonders to see in the world. To see to see a thousand pound fish or a fish that's close to it that's being courted by a bunch of smaller male fish. And when I say smaller, you know, fish in the hundred to three or four hundred pound class range that are surfing down a 15 foot swell or a 12 foot swell and they're all lit up like they have neon signs on them and they're plugged in and they're racing the males are racing around the female competing trying to get her uh to mate with them that to me seeing that from a tower is and trying to bait you know trying to get a bait in front of them to to get the female to to eat is uh, probably one of the most amazing sights and they're just they race around the female and you're trying to get her to bite and then one of them will bite and then you're actually disappointed that you've hooked a 200 pound black and there's the female still swimming along and you're you're just wanting to break that one off so you can actually try to get get her to eat i think we define that as spoiled right yeah is that the word (laughs) yep because the visual that you just gave me blew my mind you have granders racing a transom right right multiples like yeah. some people would literally spend their whole life trying to just see one grander and you have them like you're describing just racing at your lures. Yep, that's why you got to go there and and experience it. It's 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 there's nothing like it that you could ever imagine. So, if somebody wanted to catch a grander or even just have epic bill fishing, where would be the top place that you suggest for them to go? there's so many and it just depends on what you want to catch whether it's a black or a blue or i mean australia is one of the greatest wonders of the world it's it's something that i tell every fisherman that i ever meet that i fish with and spend any time with that it it is it is the one place that is one of the most majestic fishing places and experiences in the world to see everything from you know snorkeling and diving on the reef to the whole experience mother shipping and getting to see giant marlin and see them in ways that you don't get to actually see other fish it's a it is a very uh the fishing on the reef is very visual it's it's a lot of hunting you know when you're standing up in a tower you can see for you know a mile and you can see those fish you'll see a wave that might be a half a mile away and the wave is all blue. You can't see the fish, but the wave is lit up blue and you know that there's a bunch of big fish there that are like courting a female. Wow. So we're talking about, you know, crazy bites, banner days, but what would you say was the hardest part of that journey? Was there any part of fishing 350 days a year that was difficult or was it, you know, we're talking about a dream here. Probably having to go home. <laughs> no, it was amazing. It was experience of a lifetime. And um, I did it when I was young and didn't have any connections at home or with anybody and other than my, you know, my parents and my family. Um, but it, it, was, it was too amazing to think that there was anything hard about it. It was, I was definitely spoiled. And on the short amount of time that you had that you weren't fishing or that if you guys were off the boat, what would be the coolest thing that you did, you know, while you're in one of these countries, you know, we're 
I'm thinking, you know, at these years, like zip lining couldn't have been safe and things that we do in <laughs> right. Costa Rica, you know, ATV riding. Like, was there anything really unique that you did when you weren't fishing one day? I mean, you know, w we fished so many days a year and we rarely got to actually see a lot of the places that we went to, which was kind of sad. Um, but when we did, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. I think, you know, probably bungee jumping back then was, you know, absolutely, absolutely ridiculously <laughs> terrifying, terrifying, <laughs> which it was in Australia. Did that there. And, you did? Yeah. Oh my um, gosh. Can I hear a little bit about this? Like, I would love to know if you were like, what your thoughts were going down, you know? I was scared to death. It was, <laughs> I don't know, it, it was in Cairns and we went on a rainforest eco tour or whatever. And they took us up there bungee jumping. And when you got up there and it looked like you were like three miles above the 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 stream that was at the bottom of this little tiny rickety bridge that you were jumping off of, I thought I was going to die. Oh, God. <laughs> was it like one of the ones you go like head first and then bounce back? Yep. Oh, yeah. wow. Mm -hmm. You really did it. <laughs> that, wow, props to you. <laughs> that, I'm glad you lived to see the next day on that one. <laughs> so recommending trips, you know, you say that there's just, I sounds like everywhere you went that you were like just absolutely in awe of. Yeah, absolutely. So if somebody was going though, what's the best month? Like let's talk about Australia. What's the best month to visit Australia so for the, marlin fishing? The black marlin season is from uh, mid-September to um, pretty much the beginning of mid-December. So it's a short period of time. Okay. Uh, it's when the trade winds are blowing and it's really rough and the fish, the big fish are migrating down the reef and... Um, and uh and spawning you know what you just reminded me of is um when i saw this picture of my dad and it's him with his grander at lizard island in australia mm -hmm. and i look at the date and you're exactly right because i looked at the date and it said 93 and i was like wow i was one years old and my dad's <laughs> out uh catching granders in australia that's interesting <laughs> and i remember asking my mom like wow like dad got to do some cool stuff while i was just uh hanging at home <laughs> so i do know that season very well right and um that that kind of leads me into the question of like is it is it hard to be away from home obviously you were able to see so many great things but like is that difficult Back then, I didn't know any different. I was young and single and not didn't have a girlfriend and was just living my great life. And, you know, but I can definitely see how it is. I mean, I don't like to go away for long now away from my family. I enjoy being with my family. And that's why I you know, do what I do now in brokerage. It's, you really capitalized the on the right time. Yeah. So let's jump back into specific fishing talk and let's talk lures. Because I swear lures are like a time machine for men. <laughs> Every time I see guys with their lures, they're caressing them. They're talking about stories with them. It cracks me up. They put them all out on a table. And I feel like I end up, if I walk into a room and see like a man with a bunch of lures, I'm like, oh God, I'm going to be here for two hours because he's going to tell me, oh, this purple one when I was in the Bahamas got, you know, um, got hit by this like 400 pound mar and like, they're just like so proud of these things. Like, right. is this a thing? 
it's, I, I think it's like a connection to a memory in your life. And it's like they, especially if they've, you know, caught some memorable fish on it, it's like they don't, it's like it's their child. They don't want to let it go. It's they want to exactly hold on to it. how I feel and what I saw. <laughs> right. So do you have this, like, do you have this fourth child that we don't know about that like sits in like a frame or like, or at least a shadow box somewhere? Yeah, I, I might have a, a couple Tupperware boxes full of Two or three hundred of them, yeah. <laughs> Will your wife find you in the garage, like going through them like, no. one night, like just reminiscing? No, I, you know, I. It's funny, you know. With I, I was a, originally taught as in the beginning of my career by Skip Smith and Peter Wright, and you know, and Bobby Brown, and they invented the soft head with Frank Johnson at MoCraft, and I, I thought that was like the only and the best lure forever because we pulled them everywhere and they worked. And then I went to places like uh, Kona, Hawaii, and I learned from some of the greatest, uh, you know, lure inventors in the world, like um, Henry Chi and Bart Miller and Joey E and guys that, you know, in, in basically invented lures out in Hawaii. And, you know, they worship their lures there and they have a very deep connection with their lures and how they See, fish them. It's and true. It is. Listen to the way you it's talk true. about them. It is. It's no, it's crazy. And you know, when you're fishing a place where the water's calm all the time, you can do different things with lures. But when you fish in rough water, you know, if you have lures that are too crazy, they jump out of the water and they don't work right. So it's all just trying to figure out what, you know, works. I mean, I don't think there's any better bait than a, than a live tuna uh, for a marlin, that's their main primary source of food. And so anything that you can get down underwater and it looks like a tuna is probably going to get bit. What well, do you have a favorite color lure? Well, we're, we're just going to take your secrets now that you've done it all. Uh, listen, it, it, you know, everybody has their theories of light and dark and different days. And I don't know that it really makes a huge difference. I think that the more you make a lure look like a tuna and make it look attractive to them, uh, you know, the better the response you're going to get. Okay. So noted when I'm looking at lures, just find the one that looks the most like a, a tuna. Exactly. Colors. We have some crazy stuff nowadays. They, they stay underwater and they look identical to a, to a skipjack tuna. Isn't it crazy how they've evolved? Yeah. Like yeah. it's wild. It is. Yeah. So fishing accomplishments have not stopped for you. I know that there's a huge congratulations in order for a tournament that you just recently won in Los Sueños, Costa Rica. And uh, that was leg one of the Triple Crown, right? That that it was, yes. Who'd you fish with? Tell us about this win. I fished on the Grand Slam with uh, Dave Grubbs and Wallace Higginbotham. And um, it was it was quite, uh, quite a fun experience. I've been fishing with them for the last couple of years. They're an incredible team of guys that are super keen, great anglers, incredible captains. Uh, our mate, Jesse Rudolph, uh, does a fantastic job. And, uh, you know, last year was their first year down there, uh, in Costa Rica fishing. And we were like in second place a lot of last year. And, uh, this year we went back down and just were able to capitalize. It was a really fun experience. What was your ratio? How many billfish did you land? Uh, I, I think we ended up with, in the three days, uh, 49 sails, a black and a blue marlin. Isn't that awesome? How many yeah. shots you get in Costa? It's crazy. It, it really is pretty awesome. 
And then, you know, right now we're seeing, you know, some slow fishing down here. So I'm sure that felt good to get away for a little bit. Yeah, it was, it's been particularly slow this year and kind of painful. Well, not where you were in Costa, but um, I feel like the Grand Slam is a very fitting uh, name for a boat for you to be on. But um, let's get into some other things. Uh, what are you doing? You know, like where are you at in life right now? I know you're happily married. You've got three kids. Like, tell us about them. Um, so my oldest son is 20. He lives in Australia and um, very happy, loves it over there. And my other two children, um, Brody and Lindsay, uh, Lindsay's in college and Brody's 12. And every, all, of, all of my kids love to fish, and, uh, including my wife, Christy. And uh, we are very fortunate and get to go fish with a lot of my clients in different places around the world and, and uh, let them, you know, uh, have the experiences that, that some of the experiences that I got to, to do. So has it been a natural transition that your kids just, you know, were gravitated towards fishing since day one? I don't think they had any choice. <laughs> we're boaters. Like we're just, we're it's on the blood. boat. We're, we like to be on the boat and either, you know, on the water or at the beach. I know. I've always seen, you know, you and your wife at a lot of skips tournaments in the summer, always, you know, always really present in the fishing community. So I think that uh, it was more just, you know, like you said, in their blood that it wasn't even, they needed a choice. They just wanted to, right? Right. Yeah. So they obviously love fishing and traveling. Have you taken them back to any of these places that you had these incredible memories at? Yeah, they've been to uh, a lot of uh, really cool places. Obviously, we've gone to the bomb as we do a lot of our family vacations there. And uh, I try not to drill them with just fishing because as we know, they get that can get really boring fishing offshore. But, you know, we'd like to snorkel and uh, I took them to Kona, Hawaii, which is one of my favorite places in the world to fish. Uh, and I knew they'd. My wife would like it because it's it's calm. Yeah, <laughs> and right? there's big blue marlin, and there that's what go. she likes, and she loves to troll. Um, yeah, we caught some great fish there. We caught them all blue marlins and spearfish, and uh, I think a year before that we were in the DR uh, with my good friend uh, Will Tomlinson on the Marshilla, and I think we caught 22 blues in three days and had some pretty memorable experiences there. My son. And uh, and wife uh, and daughter hooking their first blue marlin themselves, dropping back and hooking their own fish. So it was pretty cool. How did that feel watching that? It was amazing. It was the I felt like it was a, one of the greatest accomplishments of my life. It was like catching a thousand pounder. Um, seeing them do that, I I was literally one morning when we first stopped and put the lines out, and we were you know of course circling a fad and. And a fish came up and my wife jumped up, Christy jumped up and I ran back there with her to kind of help her so that she was, you know, she wanted to drop back and, and, uh, free spool herself. And so I was standing there with her and I was kind of coaching her and, uh, and I turn around and my, at the time son Brody was, I think nine or 10 and he had picked up a rod because there was another blue marlin on the other teaser and he had just dropped back to the fish and was locking it up and came tight about the same time Christy did. And I almost started crying. I had a tear in my eye when I saw him do that. I was like, 
Oh, oh my God, God. You just took your first blue marlin all by yourself. That's unreal. And uh, proceeded to catch, I don't know, like seven or eight more fish in the next couple of days. From start to finish, from the yeah. bite to everything. He yep. saw it all, like did it all. He, That's Nobody even said anything. He jumped up, grabbed the rod, free Dad, spooled I got it back. This. Yeah, like I got it. I'm like, wow. So Do you cool. think that they understand the gravity of what you've accomplished and like what an accomplished fisherman you are around the world? Like, do you think that they understand, you know, because you know, of course, I'm sure, you know, you just have casual conversation like my dad is, oh yeah, like when I was in Australia and I caught the 1200 pounder and I'm like, what? Like, like, do you think they really understand? I think, I think they do after being on the boat, but I don't think they realize for like how long I did it, you know? Um, and, and I never really thought about it that much, you know? Because those are grueling days. I mean, 350 days out of the year fishing. Yeah. Like that is, it was that a is lot. insane. Back to back, nonstop. I can't imagine what you learned just in 50 days on that boat. I learned the world from Skip. He was one of my greatest mentors ever. So in saying that, like, who do you, you know, attribute all your knowledge to? I would say, you know, without question, the some of the greatest people or captains that I fished with were were Skip and Peter Wright and Bobby Brown and Bart Miller and Kevin Nakamaru and just the experiences that we had together and the stuff we learned were were just incredible. Well, you've already inspired me with the story of just picking up the phone and being a go-getter and, you know, not counting yourself out of this job, but Tell me what you would say to a 20-year-old kid who feels like, you know, like I guess your roommate was the one that felt like you couldn't get the job. You right. knew you could get the job. You believed in yourself. But what would you say to a 20-year-old that really just wants to go for it, knows exactly what they want, and might not have all of the experience, but has the work ethic and has the drive? Like, what would you say to that person? I tell a lot of young people that, especially if you want to travel the most important thing is language. Learn a second or a third language. And with that, you'll be able to go anywhere and do anything you want, whether it's fishing or business. Um, the, the opportunities are endless. That's great advice. Absolutely. So now you've worked for HMY as a broker for how many years? For 10 years. And, and how's that transition been for you? It's been great. It's uh, definitely been a, a, a wild ride. You, um, I will say when you go from being a fishing captain and mate and traveling and having all the experience, um, you go to someone, you go from someone that is extremely respected and put on a, a pedestal to being a yacht broker and being labeled as a salesman. <laughs> and it's the exact opposite. So it was, it's very difficult. Um, but I didn't feel like it was all that hard because I learned a lot about boats in all my years of traveling, especially being in places where if you didn't, if you couldn't figure it out yourself and how to fix it and make it right, then um, it, you didn't go fishing. So we figured that out. You know, Skip taught me a lot, and uh, that that's played a big part of my being successful in my career to where. I can, you know, speak intelligently about boats and systems and how they work and how to fix them. And even later on after the sale, you know, following through with clients and helping them, you know, not only go to great places and fishing, but how to, you know, help maintain their boat and- And how to and win the tournament. It. Yeah. <laughs> right. Pretty sure you just did that. 
Yeah, you're definitely the the total package and a huge asset to your clients on on all fronts. So I, I know that everywhere that you've been in your life has made you an excellent husband, you know, a dad, fisherman, and and now a broker, like you said, helping your clients. You can really, I feel like you can help them live out their dreams on the water. So I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your epic story with us today. So thank you so much, Scott. Um, please tell us how people can get in touch with you. If they want to hear about, you know, advice on travel destinations, you know, where to find these granders or the 2000 pound uh, Marlin that you told me is in Ascension Island, which is where? Where's Ascension Island? Halfway between Africa and, and Brazil in the middle of the Atlantic. How would anyone ever get there? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not the easiest place to get to. Uh, you need to fly to, uh, to London, to the British uh, Air, Royal Air Force Base, and they have flights that are used to have flights for civilians that um, travel down there. I've been over there twice, and there was a charter boat there um, that one of my good friends uh, was captaining there. And actually, the, the madam and the hooker were there uh, um, many years ago after I left the boat. Uh, but currently the island's closed, but it's, it's an amazing place that's is like Jurassic park. And it's like fishing back in the Zane gray days where no, not really anybody hardly in the world has ever fished there. And it's such an untapped resource of, of uh, big fish that, that it's, it'll be really cool when it opens back up. And you were explaining about the depths on each side of this, you know, essentially like you know, canal in between. So tell, explain that more. So, uh, you know, I, I attribute, I think some of the incredible fishing, um, besides it just being a remote destination, but in the middle of the Atlantic is the mid Atlantic Ridge, which is an underwater mountain, which, you know, travels halfway down the Atlantic. Um, that is a, a highway for, for, you know, giant pelagic fish that have never seen the the light of day of fishermen and it leads to ascension island and so it's just like a highway of of uh huge fish that end up you know eventually at ascension island this sounds like a fairy tale marlin movie it, like it, it it's just even the name of it 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 just sounds <laughs> like a dream but um yeah so are you on social media yep so i'm at uh uh scott levin hmy on instagram and uh, his Facebook is just my name, Scott Levin. And my email is slevin at hmy.com. And you can reach me uh, on my cell phone uh, pretty much anytime, 772-263-1208. Well, thanks again, Scott. We loved having you today. Well, thank you, Lexi. I appreciate your, uh, your enthusiasm and uh, the interview. It was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.